Hey guys, it's Savvy Sabs, and I have a special guest with me today. His name is Torin Walker. He is an award-winning author, a documentary filmmaker, and he is the founder of Context Media Group. Welcome, Torin. Um, thank you for having me on, Sabrina. I appreciate that. All right, cool. So um, before we get started into today's discussion, Torin, can you tell people a little bit about your background and why you decided to start Context Media Group? Well, yeah, um, my background is basically in investigative journalism. I, well, for a long while, I worked for places like the Huffington Post and for Fusion. And I came into mainstream media around the time that um, Ferguson happened, when there was a lot of heat around that story around protests and um, Black civil rights struggle. So I, feel, um, I basically fielded a lot of pieces from those areas and I wrote about them as well. And, but what I saw after a while was that my voice and some of the stories I wanted to tell about the people I wanted to tell them about had to get filtered through editors who didn't understand the culture and they didn't really understand how to tell the stories of African-Americans, especially poor and working class African-Americans. So I was frustrated with that for a long while and I decided, you know what, I have all these contacts. Um, I have a rapport with a lot of people why don't I just try to do my own thing? So I started Context Media Group basically just to go out and get the stories of people who live in poor and working class communities and who are doing the active work. Um, and it's been doing pretty well so far. That's really what it's about, just trying to tell the stories of people who don't normally get heard on cable news. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so today, uh, Torin and I are going to talk about the African American vote and the progressive movement. So Torin, the first question that I have for you is, you know, given the high African-American um, African voter turnout for Biden, um, do you feel that maybe the progressive movement has lost the black community? What's your opinion on that? Um, I don't think really that the progressive movement has lost the black community. I think what's happening is that the progressive movement is changing. The, the traditional progressive movement in American politics has usually been overwhelmingly white. What's happening now is that you're seeing a lot of progressives, um, black progressives, people like Jamal Bauman, people like Cori Bush, people like um, on the other side of it, like Brown, people like AOC who's kind of spearheaded this charge of the younger generation moving into politics. Um, I, no, I think what you're seeing is just a changing of the guard in progressive politics. It's starting to become a little bit younger, a little bit blacker, a little bit browner. So I think um, what's happening is that true progressives are starting to embrace that, um, that change. I think the traditional idea of what a progressive is, needs to, we need to clarify what that is. People have this idea that someone like a Biden is a progressive because he's not as bad as Trump. When people don't realize that, uh, that Biden is very much a centrist leaning towards center right. And a lot of people have latched on to Biden and they voted for Biden because simply because he wasn't as bad as Trump. That's really what that was. Mm -hmm. A lot of the turnout you saw for Biden wasn't so much a vote for Biden as it was a vote against Trump. So that's what happened. And the Democratic machine was very good at creating this idea that, you know, this, if you don't vote for Biden, Trump is what you're going to get four more years of. And creating, making, and Trump has been so terrible as a president that it really wasn't hard to get people on board with that. But as far as the progressive movement, no, I don't think the progressive movement has lost black voters. I think they've actually gained black voters and the progressive movement is gonna really benefit from that. Right, um, I know for me, like thinking back to the democratic primaries, um, I'm a big, big Bernie supporter. I really wanted Bernie to win. 
And it wasn't because of him per se, it was more of the issues and the platform that he was presenting. And I have to tell you on Super Tuesday, I really like broke, it broke my heart. I felt like I was shocked to see Biden win some of the states that he won going against Bernie, even my state and in Massachusetts, I felt like Bernie should have really won Massachusetts. Like, and I think that something that people may not realize is like, oftentimes people use the term liberal and progressive, like interchangeably, mm -hmm. but it's not the same thing. Not at all. Um, I think that, I think you're right about that. People do have this idea and to be honest with you, the right uh, and the propaganda of the right has done a very good job of creating this idea in the public mind that a liberal and a progressive and a socialist and a radical are all the same thing and they're completely not the same things. Um, a liberal is really somebody who is fine with the status quo as long as the status quo is done calmly in a more of a, um, more of a dignified manner. That's really what that's about. Um, we've seen this in the um, in the recent election, and we've seen this pro we've seen this process happen ever since 1980 um, when Ronald Reagan won the presidency. There's been a strong movement in the Democratic Party of trying to appeal to the center and appeal to the right, and they pushed that so far to the right that the center of the Repub of the Democratic Party isn't even really the center anymore. It's actually basically borderline light right wing. The left and progressive part of the Democratic Party is very pretty, is pretty much ostracized right now. You're not really seeing a lot of progressive movement coming out of the Democratic Party, except for the new Congress people, to the point where there's really a lot of conflict, as you know, between progressives and socialists and people on the left with the Democratic Party. So they're completely not the same things from the outside looking in. It may seem that way, but they're absolutely not. Right. And like, I think like a perfect example was the woman in Central Park who called the police on the black gentleman that was bird watching. Like, let's all remember, like that was a Hillary Clinton supporter, mm -hmm. someone who said that she was liberal. Um, yeah, that, that's, you know, you're starting to see a lot of that now um, because Trump is so heinous and because he's so bad. Anything that looks like it's to the left of that looks good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. Look, you can go to any uh, suburban neighborhood and see Black Lives Matter signs on somebody's front lawn. That doesn't necessarily mean they want you living next door to them. They'll never say that, but they have all the right rhetoric and they say all the right things at dinner parties and they, uh, and they parrot all the right speeches, but that doesn't necessarily mean they want to put skin in the game or put any kind of risk to themselves to really move the needle towards progressive policy. Now, that's a good point. Um, oftentimes, I think we find that if people feel like issues don't really affect them directly, like mm -hmm. they may oppose it, but they're not willing to fight for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you've seen that over the past couple of weeks, people on the ground and people in poor and working class neighborhoods of all colors have been sounding the alarm about um, the people that Trump is um, stirring up with this whole MAGA movement. You know what I mean? This idea that these people are organized, they're dangerous, and they're very susceptible to his rhetoric. And what you've seen from legislators who's basically been a lot of lip service and a lot of conversation about trying to reach out to these people, they didn't really care about, well, they cared theoretically, but they didn't really have a visceral feeling about this until they showed up to their front door and invaded their house. Now, all of a sudden, everybody in Congress realizes what a threat these people are and what's been fomenting all this um, violence and all these people and creating all this, this mentality. So now they wanna put legislation in place to push back. It's really legislation is five years too late, but it's better than nothing. Right. Um, when we're thinking about the mainstream media, 
like how do you feel like what has their role been in reference to the progressive movement? Do you think that they've been positive or negative? I think the mainstream media has been very hostile to real progressive movement. Um, and there's a reason for that. You got to understand that what we have in this society right now when it comes to mainstream media isn't really journalism. What you have is PR for the centrist and you have a PR for the status quo. You know, let's not forget, these are the people who gave Trump two years of free publicity before he became president. Their interest is in ratings and ratings come about by appealing to their sponsors. Their sponsor base gives money to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and they don't want to rock that boat. So to answer your question, no, um, you have not seen a lot of fair play to the progressive movement in America from the mainstream media. That's why so many of them have had to go outside the mainstream media and talk to independent news sources or foreign um, news sources. Yeah, I know, like for me, like I found out about a lot of progressive like politics on YouTube mm -hmm. because they just weren't covering it. And even when I would watch like even CNN, when I, when I watched like the way that they responded to people who brought up things like, uh, let's get rid of student loan debt, or, you know, when Bernie brought up, like, we really need Medicare for all, all of a sudden, like those same commentators were just like, uh, whoa, whoa, like, we want to help people, but we don't really want to help people. Exactly. You know, um, and it's ironic because the Biden camp began to co-op some of that language that came out of the Bernie camp and came out of the um, progressive camp. And they've used that language to kind of push themselves as this, um, this umbrella group that brings in progressives. And now that they've won the election, there's a lot of hesitancy about really enacting some of these um, policies. Um, it's, really, it's really fascinating. You have this, I, I think really the issue that a lot of people had with Trump in media and also in the Democratic Party is the fact that he had no decorum and he was very blunt about the things he said. Basically, he was saying the quiet part out loud. That's what they had an issue with. And I think what's going to happen now that Trump is beginning to starting to leave, I think you're going to see this return to the status quo and people are going to feel like we're going back to normal. But the so-called normal is what created Trump in the first place. We have to really examine what conditions were in this country that allowed him to get as far as he did. We can't swoop it back under the rug and we can't pretend like moving him out of the way is going to fix the issue. Right. Um, in reference to like the Biden administration, do you feel that the Biden administration will fix or will try to fix social issues that African Americans deal with, you know, every day, little, like little things, but also large things such as like police brutality. Do you think that his administration is going to try to fix those things? I'm not really optimistic that the Biden administration is going to put any real effort towards fixing those things. I think some of the conversations that are going to have happen with his administration are going to be a lot better than the ones you got with Trump. But we've already seen a little bit of what we can expect when that call went out with him talking to civil rights leaders and basically saying, you know, don't bring this to me just yet. Wait till I wait till 100 days from now once we're established and we can maybe talk, have another conversation about that. Um, I think if anything's going to move on those issues, it's going to have to come from outside people, from people who are on the outside of the political machine pushing people on the inside. And I do have a good feeling about some of the people who are going into Congress now, people like Bowman, who I mentioned before, and Cori Bush and people like that. I think people like that who still have their ear to the ground and still connected to the people who um, put them in the office, I think those people can push in. But from the outside and from the administration themselves, I don't really have a good feeling about that. 
No, I definitely feel you on that. Um, I feel like they said what they needed to say to like get people to come out and like vote for him. Because like, let's be real, like going back to the primaries, like during the debates, Biden wasn't doing too well. He finally pulled it together towards the end, but he, I really did not think that he was going to get as far as he did. And with all those other candidates running, I think about somebody like Marianne Williamson. I felt like she was the only one on that stage that said reparations. No, this is my number one thing. And I felt like other people, other candidates, they didn't even want to really touch it. They didn't really want to talk about it. It's like, oh, well, we don't want to get into that. And, and she like easily, like people were trying to dismiss her. The media was trying to dismiss her. And I just felt like, no, we need to talk about that. We need to have that conversation and talk about why a lot of African-Americans are, why we are in the positions that we are today because of the things that happened 400 years ago. I'm not really surprised at what happened to Marion Williamson. I saw when um, she started mentioning that, how the tone of coverage about her started moving her into this sort of like, they tried to make her into this kind of spaced out hippie woman and everything. And a lot of the um, things she was saying about reparations were first of all, were, were backed by history. And they were also backed by scholars who've done this work for years. She referenced like Sandy Darity and people like and Claude Anderson. So there was actual hard evidence behind the things she was saying, but nobody really wanted to touch that. And I think part of the reason was if you commit to something that early in your campaign, the cold hard fact is a lot of people who consider themselves liberal are going to automatically write you off as a candidate if you do anything that looks specifically for African-Americans. Disregarding the fact that you can make hard um, policy decisions and make hard policy platforms by other ethnic groups, but there's something about saying something specifically for Black people that sets people off. I don't know why that is, but it's just fascinating. No, I 100% agree with that. Like when looking at like the protests, like at the Capitol, okay. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me that some of those, those same people who complained about the protests during the summer, they made comments like, well, I'm not out there because I have a job or, you know, I, you don't burn and loot things and you don't do that. And then I'm like, and now those people are doing that. And all of a sudden there's, there's all these excuses for it. Well, like they feel like this election was stolen from them. And so I guess it's supposed to be okay because they have a different meaning. And I always go back to the blue lives matter thing with the protests. And I, I still stand by this till this day. It wasn't really about blue lives matter. They were upset because you were asking them to do something for black people. Like that, that's my, you know, feeling about that. I'll, I'll, I'll go even a little bit further. It wasn't so much about they were asking to do something um, for black people. I think the whole premise of Blue Lives Matter was this idea that you can do anything to black people and you're not supposed to face any consequences. Um, mm. you can, and if you, if you want proof of that, Look how quiet the whole idea of Blue Lives Matter and police unions have been about the killing of Officer Sicknick in the Capitol. Nobody's really said anything about that. You haven't seen any kind of social media posts with like his picture and a lot of things that most police um, departments do after a police officer has been killed. It's been a radio silence from these people because the people who would normally support them and the people they quietly back were responsible for his death. That's really what the issue is. And I think there's also this idea that if you are a black person in America, then you have no real recourse to demand your rights, no matter how you protest against it, whether it's violent or nonviolent, or if you use the right language, or if you use straight up hood language or whatever you want to call it. There is a deep issue with people in having this country for African-Americans demanding what's rightfully there. So that's what that's about. And that's why you saw so much 
soft backpedaling and a lot of soft shoe around what happened at the Capitol, all these excuses and all these things that people are trying to do to justify this. That's a good point. Um, going like forward, like politically going forward for African-Americans like voting, mm -hmm. what do you feel we should do? Because one side will say, well, you should vote because people fought for you to have the right to vote. So there's that part. But then there's another side that says, you know, similar to what Ice Cube said was like, no, like we should not vote for any of them unless they're going to, what are they going to do for us? So what is your opinion about that? Um, I think that we have to get smart about our vote and we have to get out of this idea that we're obligated to vote just because of what our ancestors did. People, you, people love using that whole, that rhetoric about like your ancestors died for the right for you to vote. No, they, I mean, some of them did, but while that was going on, we were also building businesses. We were also um, building hospitals. We were also creating infrastructure and creating links to Africa as well. It's not, you can't just boil down what our ancestors did to just voting. And we also have to realize that every other ethnic group, every other social group votes as a block for their interests. They don't go to any other, no other candidates, no other political candidates on a presidential level or on a national level go to any other group with some of the rhetoric and some of the pandering that they do to African-Americans. And I think what's happening now is that a lot of African-American voters, especially younger voters, are starting to realize that they have power as a block. If we're gonna be considered the backbone of the Democratic Party, then we need to flex that power and we need to demand certain tangibles for our vote. And what you're seeing, I think, is you're seeing what, I think some of the pushback to that, like what Ice Cube dealt with, and also what a lot of legislators um, who had uh, issues with that, a lot of people who have been in politics for years who are black are very comfortable with the status quo. And they're not used to being challenged on the ideas that they are in office for. I think what you're seeing is some fear because they know that if you're gonna be in office and you're gonna um, run your campaigns on this idea that I'm a black person and I'm running for you, black people are starting to go to them and say, look, okay, you're black you're running on this uh, platform because you're a black person. Okay, now we're black too, what are you gonna do for us? And that's a scary place for somebody who's been in office for 30 and 40 years and has been able to kind of coast on that. That's gonna have to change. And I think they need to be ready for that because I, these people are getting more and more vocal and they're also getting more and more politically savvy. So it's gonna see them whether they want to or not. That's a good point. Um, in reference to that, when you think about like President, you know, former President Obama, in your opinion, do you feel like Obama like helped the African American community? Do you feel like it was, you know, same old, same old, or do you feel like it hurt the African American community? I think, you know what, I've gone back and forth about this over the past few years. I think from a visual and optic standpoint, I think um, Obama's presidency was great for African Americans as far as something to aspire to. But as far as like hard um, policy and hard benefits, I don't really think he did anything for black people that black people weren't already doing for themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and in some places, I think he also hindered us in certain ways because, because the fact that he was there, he gave us this idea that I made it, I got where I needed to go, I'm a black person, so why can't you without really dealing it with the systemic issues that African-Americans have dealt with in this country and not putting them forth any real solid policy to move the needle any to try to alleviate some of that. So my, idea, my, my, my feelings on Obama's presidency 
are really ambivalent. I think they were, I think it was good for certain people. I think it was good for the people in his class, you know, the so-called talented 10th and the people who matriculated through Ivy League schools and matriculated through the corporate and business world but for the rank and file and majority of African-Americans, I don't really see much movement in that. Gotcha, yeah. Um, I think for me, like, I, I feel the same way you do. <laughs> like seeing him there was like, oh, wow, that could happen. But then mm -hmm. at the same time, it was kind of like, but nothing's kind of changed for us. Exactly. You know, I mean, you know, it was it was it was good. It, look, I got caught up in the moment when he became president as well. You know, I was euphoric. I enjoyed seeing this image. And we all know the history of African-Americans in this country. But once that wears off and you get into looking at his record and you get into, into looking to the material conditions of people who voted for him, you have to be honest with yourself and say that, look, it was very good for image. It looked good. It felt good. But where are you now, 10 years later or eight years later, even four years later, when he came into the presidency with almost the same sort of condition that Biden's walking into it with the Democratic majority in the Senate and the House. And he spent those first four years trying to make friends with people who were going to fight him every step of the way instead of consolidating his base. I think we have to learn the lessons of the Obama presidency and realize that optics and image can only take you so far. You have to stand on something and you have to move the needle towards what you say you believe in. Agreed. Um, I kind of feel the same way about Kamala Harris, like to be honest with you, like part of me is like, wow, someone that looks like me, that's, you know, vice president, the first one, well, not really like me, but you know, <laughs> and then, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, but her record. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like her record with the African-American community in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, again, I think what you're seeing with her is sort of like a replay of what we saw at Obama, although maybe a little bit to a worse degree. There's no getting around her prosecutorial record in California. And mm -hmm. I know that some people were so caught up in the idea of we're going to get a black woman vice president. You know, she went to, um, you know, she's, she's a soror. You know, she mm -hmm. did all the right things. She went to Howard. She went to all these places. She has all these African-American signifiers that identify her as one of us. But her record totally does not identify her as one of us especially when she did an interview before when she was running for president, when she said, am I going to do anything just for black people? No. You know what I mean? How do you line up your image and how do you line up your, your public image and your optics with your, rec with your record? There has to be a conversation about that. There has to be a conversation about, okay, well, now you're the vice president. What are your policies and what are you going to do to kind of rectify some of these things that you've done in California and some of these things you've ignored up until this point? I think that has to happen. We can't just get caught up in optics anymore and black girl magic or black male magic or anything at this point. We have to talk about hard tangibles and policy. That's right, that's deep. <laughs> um, when you look back on the you know, Democratic primaries, mm -hmm. do you think there was anyone else that was running besides Biden that could have beaten Trump? Yeah, um, I think, um, I think Bernie's campaign, I think Bernie could have had a pretty good chance of beating Trump if um, he wasn't sabotaged by the, by the mainstream media and the establishment Democrats. But I know Bernie's a polarizing figure, but even outside of him, I think Julian Castro was running a very good campaign. Mm -hmm. I know he got kicked off of the, I don't know if it was the second or the third debate, he got kicked off because they say he didn't have a war chest big enough to push him further. But I think some of his policies, he was also talking about, you know, police brutality. He was also talking about universal basic income. He was talking about these things, but he wasn't getting a lot of play in the media. 
And that's where the that's where the power of the media comes into play. If you're going to have all these candidates, you have to give everybody at least enough time and give them enough visibility for the electorate to be able to make sound decisions. I think he would have been a good candidate as well for president, but it didn't happen. I still laugh that they tried to push Mike Bloomberg on us. I was like, really? Stop and frisk Bloomberg? That one was was hilarious to me. And he came in being like really late. And I'm like, why are why are you here? Why are you running? They were gonna push Bloomberg because Bloomberg has, you know, he's very connected in the media. You know what I mean? He has his own platform and he's also very generous under the table with giving out donations and things and funding a lot of things on the on the democratic on the democratic side so of course he was going to get a shot um but it turned out to be that he's basically has some of the same attitudes that trump had he just does it in a blue tie and then he had to drop out yep well that's true um i have two more questions for you um the first one is how do you feel what's a way that you feel that we can get more African-Americans involved in the progressive movement and particularly those that are fixated on the idea that, no, I have to vote for the Democrat establishment because that's what CNN or MSNBC tells me to do. I think there has to be some real hard conversations with people who are in progressive circles with people who are poor and working class African-Americans. I think there's an, I think, I think there's an idea among progressive circles that everything has to be wonky and, and based in policy debates, but you have to take your message to the people. You have to take your message to the people who are gonna be affected by these policies who are dissatisfied with the establishment Democrats. And quiet is kept, there are a lot of conversations being had among poor and working class, and even people who are um, formerly incarcerated and are current and still incarcerated, but are still trying to fight for their right to vote about what has, been, what has voting Democrat for the past 40 years really done for us. I think that message has to be, uh, that has to go to the people who are really affected by this. And it has to be a two-way conversation. It can't be just, these are our policies and what do you think about that? It has to be pulled from people who are on the ground, people who are working day to day, who are working class, trying to struggle to make ends meet. They have to be brought into the progressive fold and have to be listened to and they have to be given voices in that movement. I think that's one way. I agree. I think that's why it's really important to have someone like a Nina Turner or like a Cory Bush. Like you need to, to have people like that who have, they've done with the everyday struggle. They went through what a lot of us have gone through and, and they made it. So they know what it's like, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of, and there's a lot of Cory Bushes and Nina Turners in every neighborhood who have never even thought about maybe running for office. But I think that, I think we have to get out of this idea that people still have that you have to present yourself a certain way to run for office or come from a certain background to be able to run for office. You know, um, I think that's one thing that AOC's campaign has, did, it did really well. It gave people an idea that you don't have to come from money and you don't have to come from these legacy families to be able to do that. Now you may not win, but even the fact that you give people the idea that you can run for office and you can have a voice in politics outside of just voting, I think it's very important and we have to have infrastructures in place to encourage that. Awesome. And my final question for you is, after everything that has happened with Trump and all of it, um, do you feel that we need another political party? Yes. I think political issues in America have gotten too big for two parties to be able to handle. Um, I think what's gonna have to happen is you're gonna have to have more than, um, 
even three parties, you may have to have three or four. I think this country is big enough for that. There's a lot of people in the, there's a lot of people who aren't served by the establishment Democrats or the establishment Republicans. And because there's no other way to go, this is where they find themselves or they get apathetic and they just complain from the sidelines. The stakes are too high in America right now. We're dealing with the pandemic. We're dealing with unprecedented political violence. We're dealing with people who feel like there's nowhere for them to go politically. They don't have a home. So they end up either, like I said, completely being apathetic or sitting everything out, or they get pulled to the extreme margins on both sides. There has to be room for people who want to make change and make a difference, but they don't have a home. I think you're going to definitely need more than one political party. Awesome. Thank you so much, Torin. Um, everyone, I'll be sure to put the link to Context Media Group in the description below. Torin, thank you for coming today. Thank you so much for having me, Sabi. I really appreciate it. Bye. Bye now. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabi Sab's channel on YouTube.